following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Revelation 17, here we go. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast, because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was, and now is not, is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who will for one hour receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Well, there you go. So this really is, I would say, one of the most shocking, one of the most graphic, one of the most vivid, one of the most horrific images in the whole book of Revelation. It is, it is grotesque, it is obscene, and it's pretty explicit. And some, some commentators of Revelation feel that when you get to Revelation 17, John has really just gone too far. Maybe God's gone too far here. I mean, this kind of image. And the argument is from some people that this image, and particularly the image of the woman being abused and degraded in verse 16, uh, will encourage misogynistic behavior. Just like kids that watch a video game of violence more likely to commit violent acts. Uh, some people argue that you read this stuff, it's more likely to make you misogynistic and lead to the, the violence and abuse against women. Well, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, 
because clearly this woman does not represent all women. And that's the first point to make. I know that's stating the obvious, but partly because this message is being recorded, I'm going to say it. This woman is not all women, and that's important. And it reminds us of the importance of interpreting very carefully and very responsibly the images and the symbols in this book. Thankfully, in Revelation 17, John gives us a lot of guideposts as to how to interpret this stuff. We'd still like him to be clearer, but he actually gives us a lot of indications and clues as to what references he's actually making. And the woman has a pretty clear reference. Look at verse 18. Last verse in the chapter. John says, The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Now for John and John's hearers, who do you think this was? Rome. Had to be. There's not consensus on a lot of stuff in Revelation, but commentators are virtually unanimous on this. The city is the city of Rome. The great city that rules over the kings of the earth was the city of Rome. So the woman herself doesn't represent the whole of the empire. She represents, in particular, the city of Rome as it existed in the first century in John's day. In the first century, throughout the empire, the city of Rome was represented by the goddess Roma. And she's depicted in various uh, icons, coins, and statues, some of which have been recovered. She was a powerful woman. She was depicted as a woman of, of justice, as a woman of victory, as a woman of great valor and conquest, might and beauty. She represented, really, everything that Rome stood for, the glory of Rome, the grandeur of Rome, the wealth of Rome, and the conquest and victory of Rome. So it's no surprise at all that, that John, when he's describing this woman, Rome, depicts her, again, as a woman, and this vision is a totally different type of woman to the goddess Roma. There could not be a greater contrast with the goddess Roma and the woman who was a drunk prostitute riding on a beast. That's the jarring contrast that's supposed to sit in our minds. You can see why John was in exile, can't you? This is politically dangerous stuff, representing Rome like this. It's, it's, it's treasonous sort of stuff. Now, in some ways, the woman of, of Rome here, the woman of Babylon, she does reflect a bit of the glory of Rome. She's dressed, look at what she's wearing here. She's, she's dressed in purple and scarlet, expensive fabrics in the day, high-end fabrics. If she was depicted today, she'd be wearing Gucci, Louis Vuitton, Prada. You know, it gives a new meaning to the devil wears Prada, doesn't it? But that's what she would have looked like, these expensive sorts of clothes, only worn by the Roman elite, wealthy, wealthy people, the, the, the aristocrats of Roman society. So she's dressed really, really well. Not only that, but she's flaunting it. She's got gold and precious stones and pearls. She wants everyone to know she's rich. She wants everyone to know she's a woman of wealth and a woman of means. And this perfectly depicted the city of Rome. It was a luxurious city. It was a wealthy city. It was an opulent city, and they didn't mind flaunting it through their architecture. And you can see remains of it if you go there today through the, the, the military presence of Rome, through the center of Roman government, through the lavish lifestyles of those on the upper echelons of society. Rome was a city of great means, great wealth, great luxury, and they wanted the rest of the world to know. And yet at the same time as this woman is dressed well and full of gold and pearls, she is a picture of depravity. The word used to describe her repeatedly in this verse, in this chapter, is the Greek word porne, which is the word we get the English word pornography, and it's translated simply prostitute. 
from derivatives of the same word, we get the other word that's used a lot of times in this chapter, adultery, porneo. It's the behavior of the porne, the prostitute. So this is a picture of sexual immorality. It's a picture of sexual deviance. But the point is not literally that Rome was engaging in prostitution. There was plenty of that going on. But the point of Revelation 17 is much broader. That this word porne is an expression of how Rome behaved. This porne type relationship that Rome had characterized the whole empire. And in particular, the city of Rome. This word porne says something about the way Rome treats people about the way that Rome degrades, about the way that Rome dehumanizes, about the way that Rome objectifies people. Not literally, necessarily through sex, but through all kinds of means in which Rome debased other people. She was a porne. So if the woman is Rome, is the city of Rome, what about the beast that she's riding? Well, again, this isn't too tricky because we've met the beast. This is the beast of the sea that came up in chapter 13. We also uh, heard of the beast back in chapter 11. And the beast, consistently through Revelation, represents the Roman Empire. So the woman is the particular city of Rome. The beast she's riding is the empire, the whole expansive empire of Rome, spread out through the Mediterranean. So the picture is of of the city riding on the back of the empire. The city of Rome being propped up by the empire of Rome. And the beast here is described just the same way the beast is back in chapter 13 with the seven heads and the ten horns covered in blasphemous names. Reference to the way the empires, the emperors of Rome took the names of God to themselves. Lord, Savior, bearer of the gospel, bringer of peace. All of those names were applied to emperors, Caesars in Rome. That's the blasphemy that's written on the empire. That's the blasphemous names that the beast took to itself. And you, you notice this intriguing little reference to the beast in, in verse 8. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. Doesn't that remind you of the description of God back in chapter 1? Who was and is and is to come? God has this past, present, future reference, this past, present, future identity. And, and John's playing on it here. He's making the beast of the empire a parody of the one true God, a counterfeit God, this beast. And, and, and he's looking at the beast in view of the victory of Jesus. So the beast once was in that before Jesus, Rome had a certain power given to it by Satan. It exercised a certain spiritual power. But now in view of Jesus, it is not. It now is not because it's been conquered through the death and resurrection of Jesus who has has conquered every rival empire, taken away the true power of Rome and the Roman Empire. Yes, it looks opulent. Yes, it looks luxurious, but its true power has been stripped from it through the victory of the Lamb. And then it has this future bit, the beast will come. It will come up and you get the sense, my goodness, is the beast going to be resurrected? It will come up. But then there's irony, almost this mocking humor where John says the beast will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The beast rises only to be destroyed. It cannot parallel the true resurrection of Jesus. The beast of Rome can't compete with the resurrection of Jesus, the power of the lamb and the victory of God. John is making the whole thing, the empire, a weak and pathetic little parody of the true victory and authority of God and his kingdom ruled by the Lamb.
So, the woman is the city of Rome. The beast she's riding is the whole of the Roman Empire. What about these seven heads that the beast has? Well, again, John gives us some clues. He says the seven heads, verse 9, the seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. Now, the city of Rome was built on seven hills. That's just an historical fact. And, this, and the idea of the city of seven hills just became a nickname for Rome. If you were traveling in the first century around the empire and someone said to you, where else are you from? You said, oh, I'm from the city of seven hills. They would immediately recognize that to be Rome. In the same way today, if you're traveling around New Zealand and someone says, where are you from? You say, I'm from the city of sales. They would probably associate that with Auckland. That might be fading a bit now. They might not like you, but they would associate it <laughs> with Auckland. It's, the, it's, it's a nomenclature just for Rome. People would recognize it. We don't today, but this was the way that title was used. So John's not being particularly secretive here. He wants us to know this is Rome. He's not really using a lot of code. He wants us to connect the dots. And it affirms uh, that the woman we're talking about really is Rome, sitting on the seven hills. But then he gives the seven hills a double reference. Just to throw a spanner in the works, he says they are also, in verse 10, they are also seven kings. And probably that's a reference to the emperors of Rome, those who ruled over the city of Rome and the whole empire. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And scholars and commentators have spent a huge amount of time and spilled a huge amount of ink debating over which particular Caesars John's referring to here. And they've tried to line up all the different Caesars up to John's day and include the ones that ruled only a short amount of time and figure out how it could possibly be that you get to number six right at the time John was writing. The problem is, it doesn't work. By any list, it doesn't work. You can't match them up unless you do some serious acrobatics with the history. You cannot match them up. So I would suggest, as we've tried to do throughout this book, that we look at the number symbolically. That's the whole point of apocalyptic literature. We've already talked about the number seven being the number of perfection or completion. When used of God, it represents his absolute perfection or his absolute sovereignty and glory, right? We've also looked at the number six. Remember 666? It's the number of humanity. Six is the number of human beings trying to be God. That's why the beast is called 666. Human beings trying to claim God-like status, but never getting there. And in the process, revealing themselves to be idolatrous by even trying. So what do you think it might mean that the emperor who is reigning happens to be number six? I don't think John's saying there were five Caesars before him and he's number six chronologically. I think he's saying whoever the empire is, whoever the emperor is who is ruling, he's always number six. So when Domitian died and the next guy came along, he was still number six. Because the symbolism is that he represents a human attempt to be God. The emperor embodies that number six, that claiming of God-like status. So don't try and count up emperors and get to Domitian, but rather see the symbolic value of an emperor who allowed others to worship him as God, embodying the symbolic number six, humanity's effort to attain God-like status. That's what John's saying. So, the woman is Rome, the beast is the Roman Empire, the seven heads are the Roman emperors and the city and the hills on which Rome was built. And finally then, what about these ten horns? In chapter 12, the ten horns you saw 
are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who will for one hour receive authority as kings along with the beast. Well, this has been a real, um, a huge thing for end times theorists who have tried to figure out who these ten kings are. One of the popular ones back in the 50s was the EU, the European Union, when that was established. People thought, oh, that's going to be the ten horns. There's six member states that started in the EU, and people thought it's going to be the ten horns of the beast. But then, sadly, more nations joined in the EU and it bumped over the number 10, so that theory got thrown out. And then, more recently, people have thought it was the Eurozone nations and on it goes. Again, responsible interpretation of Revelation starts with the history, starts with the historical approach. The 10 horns of the beast are most likely to be the client kingdoms and client kings that Rome engaged with. Rome had an amazing military but the, the empire was so expansive, there was no way it could directly rule over every single territory. So when the Roman army moved in, conquered a new nation, they would subjugate the people, but then they would try and enter into an alliance with a native king, a native ruler. Herod the Great's a good example of this, the guy who was ruling over Judea when Jesus was born. He wasn't Roman as such. He was, he was kind of a Jewish half-caste. But Rome entered into an alliance with Herod so that they didn't have to put their military base there. They could rule through him. And he became a client king of Rome. Most commentators believe that these ten horns represent these various client kings and client kingdoms dotted around the empire. And this relationship of, of, of central Rome, the Roman government, to its client kings and client kingdoms really gets you to the heart of why Rome is described as a porne, as a prostitute. Because it conducted these relationships in a way that resembled prostitution. These relationships were completely self-serving at both ends. The only reason Rome put Herod in place and many, many other kings like him was so they could consolidate their power base there and spend their military force somewhere else, conquering the next territory. And the only reason that Herod was interested in forming an alliance with Rome was so he could consolidate his power and expand his own territory and enlarge his reputation and get more power for his family. If he hadn't had those benefits flowing to him from Rome, he'd never have been interested in the relationship. But he knew the only way to get power for himself was going to be to schmooze up to Rome, and schmooze he did. He was a chronic schmoozer, old Herod. I visited Caesarea on the coast of Israel where Herod built a huge temple to Roma, the city of Rome, and Caesar Augustus. All in extravagant Italian architecture, the whole thing a massive tribute to Rome. Even though Israel's on the other side of the Mediterranean, the whole thing a huge tribute to Rome, a center of worship for Rome, a center of veneration for the empire and the emperor, all because Herod knew how to grease up. He knew how to give the accolades and give the honor and give the great tributes so that more power and maybe even a promotion would flow his way. This kind of relationship is porne, utterly self-serving. It's really all about asking, what is it that this person or this party or this group can do for me? And in the process of approaching relationships that selfishly, both sides become dehumanized. They're not treating each other as human beings. They're not entering into any kind of real relationship of love, reciprocity. There's just a selfish approach to get benefit, to get power, 
to get advantage, and the other will be exploited as long as they will do that. Just as in pornography, the other person is reduced to an object that can return some type of benefit, return, return some type of pleasure to me. It is objectifying. It is dehumanizing. It is utterly selfish. It is pornay. doesn't literally have to be sexual, the relationship, to be a pornay type relationship. Well, pornay relationships, of course, have characterized every empire, haven't they? Not just Rome. Rome might have exemplified them, but they've characterized every empire, every culture through history, including our own. In fact, today, I would suggest that we've got our own brand of pornay relationships. We've packaged it up into our own product, and it's called reality TV. We know pornay relationships. Just watch The Apprentice. I mean, the dawn would be the embodiment of this type of thing, wouldn't he? The Roman emperors had nothing on the dawn. He even had the haircut. The power, the status, the wealth, the privilege. It's just nauseating watching The Apprentice. The amount of greasing that goes on from those contestants falling over themselves to impress the dawn, to grease up to the dawn, to get in with the dawn. And why? To get a share of his power, to get a share of his wealth, to get a bit of his business, to become his apprentice, to ride on the coattails of his reputation. It's the only reason they're there. And what's in it for the dawn? Publicity, accolades, power, and self-promotion. It's porn, eh? What about Survivor, TV program Survivor? It's all about entering into an alliance with other people in order to get yourself to the final two or final four. The relationships themselves are completely self-serving and self-promoting. And you can argue that it's just a game, but isn't it interesting when you get to the final tribal council in Survivor, it's not a game. And people's feelings are hurt. And people feel trust has been betrayed and integrity has been compromised. Those moral lines are crossed and it is personal. It's pornay. And think of, dare I even mention it, think of the ridges. I've only seen part of one episode. I'm pleased to tell you. Only a bit. Only a bit of one episode. But it seems to me, from my moderate observations, that at least part of what's going on in that program is a mother using her daughter to increase her own celebrity and status and reputation, which is actually so quite sad and, and disappointing. Uh, to, to sort of gain this self-promotion. It's another form of porné. And I know you can say, well, uh, you know, these, this is just television, but this stuff normalizes relationships. And it displays it for the rest of us and promotes a certain way of relating to each other. At a personal level, we're all guilty of this kind of stuff. We tend to evaluate relationships in our Western culture based on what they can return to us. We look at other people and we ask, what benefit can I get from them? If you're not saying it, you're thinking it. If you're not thinking it, you're thinking it subconsciously. What can they do for me? What benefit, what advantage, what power, what pleasure, what result, what bonus, what can I possibly get that this person is going to bring my way? I can see this tendency in my own life, if I'm honest. There have been times I've sat down with people who are just new to the church and they're telling me their story of how God's brought them to shore and, and how difficult that road's been and what a wonderful thing it is to find a new church. And I'm thinking, I wonder if it's too soon to ask you to join the setup team. <laughs> Can you ask that in the first conversation? 
maybe I need to wait just a little while. Is this appropriate yet? You know, maybe do I need to listen a bit more? You know, what, what, what needs to go on? They're pouring their heart out to me about how hard it is finding a new church and how welcoming we've been and what a wonderful thing this is. And I'm looking at their biceps thinking, I reckon you could lift a speaker. <laughs> you could probably lift two speakers, actually. We could get your whole family involved. It could be a new setup team, you know. <laughs> when I do that, that's porn A. That's me not seeing a person, not seeing a human being. Now, of course, it's good to serve in the church and participate, but that's me losing sight of the person and their story and treating them as an object, treating them as a commodity who I can use to some advantage in running the church. It's porn A. And don't we all do this at times? In all kinds of ways. You might have someone in your life who really looks up to you, really puts you on a pedestal, and those accolades feel good, don't they? All that praise, all those compliments, all that encouragement, it feels good. It strokes our ego. And maybe some of the reason you're so invested in that relationship is because of what's flowing your way in the form of all that praise. You need their need. And that's codependency. That's porn A. You may be in a dating relationship or a marriage relationship and you look to the other person for all your worth, for all your value, for all your affirmation. For all your self-security, you're looking for them to prop up your whole sense of self-identity. That's not a healthy marriage. That's emotional fusion. That's porn A. Whenever we use another person, and we may not be meaning to be greedy, we may not be meaning to be malicious, but when we need or want or use another person for our own benefit, it is porn A. And the thing with porn A relationships is that sooner or later, they self-destruct. It's exactly what happened to Rome. Look at verse 16. The beast and the seven and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. It's an awful, awful image. And it, it talks of the empire imploding and of Rome being turned on by its own client kingdoms because as long as the benefits are flowing, the relationship's good. As long as the benefits are going both ways, everybody's happy. But when the other party stops giving you what you need to extract from them, the relationship melts down. It takes serious strain and you're not as interested in it anymore or they're not as interested anymore because it was only ever selfish to begin with. Thankfully here, John gives us a way out. In the middle of this grim passage, in the middle of a really grisly description of this, of this woman, there is an amazing ray of hope and light here. Look at verse 14. All these powers, the woman, the beast, the ten horns, the seven heads, they will make war against the lamb, that's Jesus, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be his called and chosen and faithful followers. There's a description of relationships that are completely unlike Pornay. The way God has chosen to relate to you and I is the opposite of the way that woman in Revelation 17 behaves. Look, just look at the, the words that are used. We will be his called and chosen and faithful followers. You are called by God. If you're called, you've got a name. If you've got a name, you've got dignity. That's not porn, eh? That's humanity. That's God creating you in his image, making you fearfully and wonderfully and entering into a relationship with him because he loves you and he's called you by name. God doesn't see you as an object. 
He doesn't see you as a commodity. He doesn't see you as something to be exploited and mined for his own selfish benefit. He sees you as his chosen and precious son or daughter with whom he desperately longs to unfold into his arms. That's who you are to him. That's not porn A. That's lamb power. That's self-giving love. That's genuine relationship. Not only are you called, you're also chosen. God has chosen you. He's set you apart. What does that say? It speaks to your value, doesn't it? In his eyes, that you are of such immeasurable worth to the Father that he's placed his hand upon you and chosen you and drawn you into relationship with him. Again, absolute opposite of porn A. Not only are you called, not only are you chosen, you're called to be faithful. And we don't feel faithful a lot of the time. But God in his own behavior towards us has shown us what it means to be faithful. Man, if God had turned off the tap of relationship with us when the benefits stopped flowing back to him, it would have been over a long, long time ago. But God hangs in there with us. God can say to us, just look at my track record. Look at the faithfulness through the covenant history of Israel and the church. I will never turn away from my people. No matter how faithless we are, God will not deny himself in his own nature. He hangs in there with us. He sticks in there with us. He perseveres with us. When we return nothing to him, when we give nothing back to him, when we spit in his face and deny him and wander off down our own selfish paths, God stays there right beside us, just waiting for us to turn back. He's the patient and long-suffering God who perseveres with his people. That's not porn, eh? That's the love of a father. And God says to us, you know, I've drawn you into these relationships these relationships of love and these relationships of selflessness. And now, as those who are called and chosen, I want you to be faithful like this in your relationships with one another and in your relationships with others. I want you to stare into the face of this woman of Babylon and I want you to walk in exactly the opposite direction. I want you to do everything you can to practice relationships that look completely different to that. Our relationships with one another and with others in our life should look nothing like porn. Instead, they should be characterized by selflessness, by a self-sacrificing and self-emptying love towards the other. Murray Dixon's one of our elders here, and he's had some correspondence over the past couple of years with a guy who's recently been released from Perimurimo Prison. He started writing to him when this guy was still in prison, because the guy reached out for some help and wanted some positive people in his life. So Murray went and met with him. Didn't know him, but just went and met with him. Visited him several times while he was in prison and ended up going to some of the guy's hearings with him. Even though some of, some of the guy's family weren't too keen and weren't very supportive of him, Murray hung in there with him and represented and, 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 and sat there as a support, as a guide, as a positive presence in his life. And now the guy's been released from prison. Murray's kept in there. And he's kept meeting with him and he's showing up and he's encouraging and he's trying to find ways to practically care for this guy, to help meet some of his needs. He's tried to mobilize some of the guys at shore to move in. He's connected him, trying to connect him with a church in the city. He's been involved in other agencies where other services might be able to be provided. There's not a lot of benefit in that for Murray. He's not getting anything out of it. Nothing's really being returned to him except the knowledge that he's doing exactly what Jesus would be doing if he was on this earth. But Murray is demonstrating something that's the opposite of porn A. He's demonstrating lamb power. He's demonstrating the self-giving love. 
And God calls us to do the same in the situations and the relationships that we have. Maybe there's a relationship that you have that has this tendency towards selfishness, towards porn A, and you need to have a good hard look at it. Maybe there's someone in your life that you, if you're honest with yourself, you're mainly in that relationship because of what you're getting out of it. Because something's flowing back to you and you need to ask some hard questions. Maybe you need to have a conversation with that person and be honest about it. Maybe you need to graciously end the relationship because it's just purely selfish on your part. Maybe you're on the receiving end of porno. And maybe there's someone that you feel is just using you. And maybe because they're giving something back, you feel like you're hanging in there, but you know in your heart of hearts you're just being exploited. You're being used. You're being reduced in that relationship. And God's saying, that's not the kind of relationship that I have for you. That's not why Jesus died. You don't have to put up with that. You don't have to be that kind of victim. You don't have to be the target of that kind of selfishness. You may need to walk away from a relationship. You may need to redefine that relationship. You may need to have an honest conversation with that person. Tell them how you're feeling and tell them what their behavior is doing to you if you are a victim of porn A, that kind of selfishness in relationships. But maybe there's someone in your life and you don't have much of a relationship at all, but you can start to walk in the other direction with them and you can begin to be a blessing to them. Whether or not there's been any kind of selfishness in the past, you can look for ways to demonstrate this lamb power to them, the called, the chosen, the faithful. You can model something different to what the rest of the world does with relationships. Maybe you can look for ways to meet a need practically, to offer love, to be present with someone who is struggling, to offer a word of encouragement, to give something, to do something, to be someone that helps someone else so that you are showing the world what it looks like to be different to Rome, to be different to Babylon, to be different to the empire that we find ourselves within. And as we do this collectively, we are becoming a community that looks less and less like the woman of Rome, the woman of Babylon. And we're becoming more and more like the woman who is the bride of Christ. Because that's the great counterpoint to the woman of Babylon. She's not mentioned here in Revelation 17. She's coming in chapter 19. The bride of Christ. Dressed in fine linen, pure clothing, pure and unblemished. The righteous acts of God's people. Keeping herself pure for her husband. That's who we are called to be. God is calling us to move away from the woman of Babylon, the woman of Rome, and towards the bride of Christ. And I wonder whether part of the reason that Christians sometimes have been so keen to try and connect this woman and the beast and the horns and the, and the heads with these external things and people like the EU or some future antichrist is because we've been unwilling to recognize the fact that this woman is us. And we've not been willing to confront that reality that we are all, at times, that pornay. It's easier to try and identify with someone else, isn't it? But we're all guilty of her crimes. We're all guilty of these pornay type relationships. And by recognizing that and by owning that, we are empowered to choose not to be her any longer. But to be someone and to be something different to be relationships that are modeled on the kind of way God has treated us with absolute selfishness, absolute love, absolute self-giving and self-emptying love. That's what we are called to be in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, universities, social circles. We are called to be these called and chosen and faithful followers of God, conformed to the image of the bride of Christ.
conformed to the image of the crucified Messiah. Let's pray. Father, I pray you'd bring to our minds ways in which we've been guilty of this type of relationship, this type of behavior that we see. And even though it's, a, it's an awful picture to look at in Revelation 17, I pray, Holy Spirit, for your conviction if there are people that we've treated like this. Lord, if there's relationships right now that we're in, just for selfish reasons, help us to work on our motives. Help us to come back to you. And I pray, Father, that this wouldn't be about guilt or condemnation, but it would be about having an honest look at our lives and our relationships and evaluating them in view of the way you've treated us. Lord, help us to reject porn A in all of its forms, in all of its expressions, and to pursue genuine, self-giving love. Thank you that that is what you've shown us. Thank you that that is what you've called us to show others. Lord, make us the bride of Christ and not the woman of Rome. We pray in Jesus' name. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.